Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Small Business Edge Podcast. Our guest today is Jorge Gaviria, founder and CEO of Macienda and the star of the latest Capital One TV commercials that highlight small business owners from around the country. And as you know, I love any commercials that celebrate and recognize the the hard work and and successful small businesses. So uh, I'm excited to have him on the podcast. And today we're going to talk about Jorge's path to success and what he has in store moving forward. So with that, I want to welcome to the Small Business Edge podcast, Jorge Gaviria. How did I do on your last name? That was perfect. Much better Uh, than my mom's. (laughs) (laughs) You're too generous. My, yeah, my in-laws, I, I mentioned to you off air, my, my wife's family's from Nicaragua. They're yeah. all laughing at me right now, saying, never, <laughs> ever going to get it right. It's a good so, litmus test. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Uh, so welcome to the to the podcast, Jorge. I'm, I'm excited so to have, me, Brian. have you on. So we're going to touch on a number of things. I want to hear all about the Capital One uh, program where you were selected and what that's done for you. But let's start with your background. So you went to NYU, right? You mm-hmm. you you what got a degree in media, culture, and communication. Yeah, yeah. Had no idea what I was doing. That's that's <laughs> what that means. All right. Take me from because you 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 graduated and then five years later you started Macienda. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Unless LinkedIn is lying to me. I no, no, you're totally right. I've just I've never done that math. It was a it was a quicker turnaround than I thought. Feels like it's been much more circuitous, you know, than than it than that. Well, I read, so I got I got a line cook, a pig pig herder, and uh, a couple of other things in between, which all kind of led you to that. But all right, so you're at NYU, right? Mm-hmm. Great school, media, culture, communications. You can go anywhere. What's your first job out of college? My first job out of college was with AmeriCorps, so I actually taught for two years uh, okay. in in Brooklyn, and that's. You know, I think that was sort of for me, um, it was 2009 when I graduated. Economy was not so great. I was kind of biding my time before I went to law school and or I thought I was going to go to law school. And teaching was something I was really passionate about. So it felt like a really good opportunity to uh, dive into that world, kind of build my resume, you know, real world experience, and then, you know, go go to law school two years later. Okay. And that didn't happen? No, no, it didn't. All right. Uh Tell me after teaching in in the Peace Corps. Tell me where because it's not a, a quick turnaround till Macienda. So, what's the next two <laughs> or three steps? So, when I was teaching, I, I realized I was teaching at a pretty tough school. Um, it was one of the eleven transformation schools in in New York, which means that it was like basically on the chopping block to get closed if if academic standards didn't kind of rise up and statistics for that school improve. And so, um, you know, it's like survival. You're with 35 kids. Uh, in this case, you know, a lot of these kids, um, it was a really tough environment. And a lot of these kids had special um, kind of needs or special kind of academic um, programs. And, and you really had to entertain and keep them really captive for as long as you were required to be in classrooms all day. And so I used food as a, as a way to just engage kids and, and you know, bake in academic Kind of concepts into you know into food so like converting uh you know grams to i don't know ounces or you know metric to whatever 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's been a while. I don't do any of that anymore, obviously. <laughs> but um, I realized like the more I turned to food, the more I was sort of, it was, it was a very organic, natural progression for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I started to kind of pay attention to that passion a little bit more and just thought like, why don't I, why don't I try to see what I can do in the food space in my spare time? So I actually started working in a restaurant nearby on the weekends. So I would work Monday through Friday uh, at this school and then uh, moonlight on the weekends as like a prep cook at a Southern barbecue restaurant. Um, And I loved it. Like after my first shift, um, you know, I got a beer at like three o'clock in the afternoon as I was like cutting pickles. And I was like, this is the greatest day off I've ever had. And yet like I'm working. Um, And I, I became addicted to that lifestyle really quickly. Like I just, I loved being surrounded by food and, you know, I was listening to music while I was just like using my hands and, um, you know, it was just not something that my parents had ever, my dad's a lawyer. Uh, and so he had never really encouraged this. Um, and as I started to kind of, I think, dip my feet into that world, I realized that I wasn't cut out for law at all. I really needed to be in, you know, working with food on a daily basis. And that was sort of the turning point for me. Yeah. So from that, did something bring you out to LA or that was just oh, go West young man? That was the in-laws. Yeah. So, uh, okay. back to them. They're really, they're really the main characters of my, my, my story here. Uh, but no, I, I, uh, I met my wife. Um, so I should back up. So I, I was working at the Southern restaurant to kind of like make a little bit of extra money, um, kind of flex my, my hobby there and see if I wanted to turn it into a full-time job, finished my two-year commitment to AmeriCorps and then decided at that point that I wasn't going to go to law school. I kind of pulled out at the last second. Um, and went to Italy for about a year and started doing um, kind of farming, butchering apprenticeship there. That's when I started herding pigs, which is a lot of fun. You should try it. It's really not that complex. I, I think anyone could put that on their LinkedIn and get away with it because it's it's not a certified <laughs> thing. Um, but uh, I was there for a year. And actually, the chef, a chef that I knew kind of from the AmeriCorps days, came out and visited me. And he was, he was the chef at a Danny Meyer restaurant in New York City called Maialino. Mm-hmm. Um, which is still open. It's since relocated. And he said, look, if you ever want to work with me, let me know. Like you have a job in whatever kind of part of the, of the, of the restaurant that you want. And it's really hard to get a restaurant job in New York, especially like just the standards are so high. It's a totally different environment. And so if you haven't gone to culinary school, um, if you haven't, you know, worked in other restaurants before, it's sort of this catch 22, like you can't really get in. Um, yeah. so to have an open invitation was, uh, was just like, an amazing experience and transition for me from from Italy there. And that's actually where my, I ended up meeting my wife. Uh, I was a line cook and she was a, a manager. And that's why I ended up in LA to answer your question. Okay. Okay. That's amazing. What a great, it's a, it was quite serendipitous that you, Very would, much so. that you would kind of meet your wife and find your passion in, in the same place. Very much so. Yeah. Wow. So you move out to LA and this is what, about 2013? <clears throat> I ended up moving to LA in 2015, 2016. Okay. Uh, I had like a 10 month stint in San Francisco, which I don't really talk about because it was uh, just like a, you know, yeah. 10 months. A forgotten like, year. Yeah, it's, yeah, right. it's, not, even, it's not even a full year. Yeah, it was a, <laughs> I it's have a, a couple. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're down in LA and... Masienda happens, right? Tell me how that, so here you are, you have a passion for food, you have a passion for cooking and restaurants and whatnot, Mm -hmm. right? When do you start Masienda and how do you start it? So after my, you know, I ended up working at a restaurant called Blue Hill at Stone Mm -hmm. Barns, which was really kind of like the farm to table restaurant in the U.S., 
Um, and a lot of amazing conversations were happening at that time when I started working there and all about just like a connectedness with the farm and taking sort of an active role in working with farmers to produce produce or, you know, livestock with the best flavor possible. And I realized that, you know, the, the work that I was doing there was super compelling, but I, when I reflected back on the foods that I grew up eating, I mean, granted, this was like a new American sort of French restaurant in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. um, in terms of like technique, right? The foods that I grew up eating in a Latin household weren't represented in that conversation. And I was like, well, what do you know, like what do what is what do beans taste like that have this like whole farm to table emphasis? What does masa taste like? You know, and masa, if you don't know, um, I know I assume you know because your your wife is uh is, is uh, of the tribe. But um, you know, we are um, you know, it's it's a it is the staple that connects really all of Latin America. It's basically corn that has gone through this amazing alkaline treatment process that gives it a ton of nutrition, amazing flavor, and then it's ground into a dough. And that dough is what is called masa. So like anybody who's ever had a tamal or a tortilla or a pupusa or arepa, all of that is masa. Does nakatamal fall into that category? I don't know. I mean, tamal is in there, so I'm assuming yes. Yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. that that riff is a deep cut. They made me eat it. it was, they told me it was for breakfast, and, and okay. it's called naka tamal. It sounds. It, it sounds eligible. Yeah. Okay. It sounds totally right. eligible. But yeah, I mean, it's like it's a 12 billion dollar category in the U.S., and yet most people don't know the word. You know, if you just again in law test, they had no idea what I was doing for a living. They were very concerned about you know their daughter marrying some guy who was going to do a, a corn business. Uh-huh. Or a masa business, and um, you know it's 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 increasingly part of a global pantry. It's a forty six, forty eight billion dollar industry worldwide, and yet there's really only one brand that dominates this entire space. And so I got really curious about sort of why is that, and and kind of what was the history of that relationship in the market, and um, you know everything kind of conspired to just start a masa business, and, mm. and that's what I did. I, I did that in New York actually first in 2014, and then ended up moving out to uh, the West Coast about a year later. Okay, so you you move. So this you kind of fall in like I would call you an accidental entrepreneur. I'd call you a passionate business owner. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you you it wasn't necessarily that. Okay, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to produce something. And like it was it was your passion for food and culture that drove you to say, "Hey, there's a void in the marketplace. I think I can fill it." Is is that yeah? Totally. Accidental. I mean, all of the fundraising and kind of the, the the unit economics and all of that. Like, it wasn't about making money. I think the goal in the beginning was just to pay my rent and find a way to gracefully exit the restaurant business without, you know, working in a kitchen necessarily anymore because it was taking its toll on me for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that now that's the talk to us a little bit about that. Like it w- it was a side hustle and then it became your full time business. Yeah, I mean, if you've worked in a restaurant, you know that the hours are sort of crazy, but you're you're largely nocturnal. So you know, you get into work at like one, two p.m. and you go until you know one, two a.m. depending on the restaurant and what the shift is. Yeah, and so I would wake up, I would go home, um, I would get to bed, and then I'd wake up at like six, six thirty, and start basically an entire day of work prepping for you know the research that was needed to kind of identify the supply chain we wanted to use for this masa company. You know, I had no idea where it was going to come wow. from. Um, so I basically would work like two full-time shifts, one mm-hmm. that didn't make any money and was sort of setting up the foundation for Mafienda, and then the other one that would pay for a very modest rent in uh, in Brooklyn. Now, were you working with anybody? 
like did you go to any like score or small business development center sba offices any no, friends no. family as advisors not in the beginning no in fact I, when i let my dad know that i was going to do this he was he was super supportive and he could finally relate because he though he is an attorney and was you know a little bit confused about my decision at first he was excited about just me working for myself you know it was just something that he always talked about was just like the pinnacle of of, of I don't know, just like a being and, and that work-life yeah. balance is just when you are your own boss. And so he was helpful. I said, I need a loan. I need to buy a truckload of corn. It's going to come from Mexico. I mean, like the trust, you know, I'm, I was a good kid, but like, I'm just like the, the optics of this, like I need to buy a truckload of this stuff from, from Mexico. Yeah. Don't ask too many questions. I, you know, like I, I'm, I'm good for it. I'll pay you back. And you know, it was all like a little bit dubious now when I look back on it. But yeah, I, I, I needed to buy a truckload of corn to get the business started and start selling to chefs, which is sort of where the business began, right? It was a B2B company. That the, uh, we call that the friends, family, and fools. Yes. The, the, uh, that loan, right, is, is the very beginning of it. Yeah, I think I was probably the fool in that story. I, I got my, I got my uh, butt handed to me in the, the, those early days. And it happens. It happens. So that's that's part of your education. All right. So now you're in you're in LA and Masienda is up and running and it's and it's full time now. What was that like? So you're sourcing your corn from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And this is now what, 2016, 2017? Yeah, 2015, 2016 is sort of like when the company started to get its stride. Um, so Masa, I mentioned, is made of corn. And so mm-hmm. like I couldn't quite yet start a consumer packaged good, you know, company, like I I had to kind of find ways to monetize the supply chain we were building because we were building something that had never been sort of done before. The the model is different in that we're not sourcing corn from Iowa, which is obviously corn is readily available there. It grows in abundance. Um, The special part of what makes our masa different is that we work in an impact-based supply chain that works with smallholder farmers in Mexico that are largely subsistence-based. So that means they grow for their own consumption. And then any surplus they have is what we buy. So, I mean, average farm in Iowa is like 330 acres. Average farm or, you know, household kind of plot in in Mexico or in Oaxaca is like five acres, maybe. It's a very, very different kind of paradigm. But um, the idea was to kind of build that supply chain and kind of get the raw materials at a volume and a scale, we could kind of then pivot into some kind of value-added product. But you know, because I worked in the restaurant industry, the way we built that model profitably to kind of organically bootstrap was to sell to chefs. And I and I knew a chef or two from having worked in restaurants in New York. So it sort of was like the the way to kind of organically finance that that early uh, that early start and build the supply chain for what is now really kind of what the company has become, which is is a masa company. And so where's the, with the, the name Masienda? Where did that come from? I made it up uh, against my, my wife's better, better uh, wishes. Uh, she said it should have been called the Masa Project. But Masienda means uh, it's, it's uh, the completion of Masa, which is obviously dough or corn yeah. dough, and Tienda, which is store in Spanish. Okay. So the Masa store. All right. I love it. Masienda. Yeah. All right. So now you're up and running. What, what were probably the biggest obstacles that you faced in... You know, I, I'm going to talk about pre-pandemic, pandemic, and then the you know, kind of post-pandemic, and then weave in this whole Capital One story because yeah, that's it's I, instrumental to the story for sure. 
Yeah, it, it's like uh, I always I always liken it to like a moonshot. You know, I, I see yeah. the uh, you know, opportunities. You know, have your small business profile. Like, there's no way that anybody wants to hear my story, and so I just don't do it. So I'm always amazed, like when I talk to people who actually win these things and get highlighted and showcase their business. But before we get to that, so here you are now. It's let's let's mo- let's kind of move it right up to 2019 pre-pandemic. So in that first five years, you built your business. You're sourcing your corn from Mexico, in 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 what would you call them sub subsistent um, farmers? Subsistence growers, yeah. All right. How did you find them? By the way, how how did you set this whole thing up? And you actually set it up. It wasn't. Nobody had done this before you? No, no one had done it before me. Um, yeah, it took five years. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very, very long kind of like soft launch, as it were. But um, yeah, I mean, just working with communities down there, uh, folks who had been working on the ground for a long time, seed-saving communities, and just doing work through the government, like at literally every lead. There, there's no one single lead. It was, it was like hundreds of leads that kind mm. of inspired to help build, you know, I think we started with 12 farmers the first year and now we're in a network of about 2000. So it just, yeah, it was sort of 2000 farmers. Yeah. It's crazy. It was literally, it feels like kernel by kernel, how we built the the supply chain for those first five years. And what's the universe of corn farmers in Mexico? I mean, there's a lot more, there's about 3 million of them, but um, you know, it's uh, tough to reach. They're in very remote parts of Mexico, really rural communities. So establishing infrastructure in those places takes additional time too. I love this. I mean, I love, I love the fact that you, you know, you're helping other business owners, you know, in another country and they're able to then, you know, work together and, and, you know, that, that is like a win, win, win all the way around. Um, All right. So it's, it's, let's, let's move forward to 2019. Um, How many employees do you have and how's your business doing? I mean, employee-wise, we were still small. You know, we were really bootstrapped up until that point, taking a little bit of money from friends and family to kind of build up the inventory we needed. We were trying to raise, you know, debt financing as well. So um, we were keeping it lean. It was about, I don't know, it was like four of us maybe total in the U.S. with like a larger group in Mexico. Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, still strongly sort of rooted in food service. We were helping chefs basically start their own masa programs. Okay. So, you know, some it sort of became this big moment of some high-end chefs that were using our product to make into masa for tortillas or tamames or whatever they were doing in, in their restaurants. Um, and it was a nice business, but it was sort of a lifestyle business at that point. Sure. You know, it was, it was not something that had much scale beyond that until the pandemic came around and really changed kind of the nature of what we were doing. And, and that's exactly where I wanted to go next. So yeah. here you are. It's January 1st, 2020, new year, new decade. You putting together your plans for whatever the future might look like for Macienda. What were you thinking in January of 2020 for your business that year? I was getting pretty restless. Um, you know, fundraising for us, we had kind of done a little bit of a test into retail grocery with a line of tortillas that was in maybe like 400 stores total. That category was really tough. Like it wasn't, it wasn't boding well for kind of long-term scale. 
Um, and we were just kind of going back to the fundamentals of the business, which was food service. And like, you know, was it a huge business? No, you know, it was like under 5 million, probably total revenue. Um, but it was something that was meaningful, you know, was creating an impact for farmers that we were working with in Mexico. And it was fundamentally profitable. So I thought at this point, let me just figure out a way to kind of gracefully step aside from the business. Cause I, I was, I had a lot of kind of ideas that I wanted to test and do new things. And, um, I wanted to basically sort of build myself out of it essentially so that it could keep running on its own. So I was starting to do that. Um, and one of the things I really wanted to do before I did that was write a book. So I was like, you know, I've got this like bucket list of things. Let me just start focusing on this bucket list and like, you know, it'll all be at the service of the company. And, um, and yeah, in like one to two years, I'll start something else while keeping this business running with the, with the team that's there. And then March happened. Um, we had just finished buying all, all of our inventory for the next 15 months. So it was oh, about, wow. I think it was like a little more than a million pounds of corn. All of our cash is tied up in Mexico. Um, and uh, we, you know, food service was our really our sole customer, our sole yeah. kind of like um, market. And obviously in March, everything changed. All restaurants shut down across the country. No idea when they would open back up. We were sitting on a ton of inventory that we're paying for storage. Um, people are talking about borders closing and we may not even be able to get that inventory into the US. Like, So you didn't have was, the inventory. You didn't have no, that. Time, so you didn't have it. It was in, it was in warehouses in, in Mexico. And so like, you know, this was, I think Trump was still in office and like, yeah. it was also oh, yeah. like, yeah. It, it was just a, it was just total pandemonium. Like we, we, you had to spend, you know, thousands of dollars to get one truck over and we had dozens of trucks, you know? So just thinking about that cash out at that moment while also, you know, balancing the, the, our, our inventory needs and like, how are we even going to sell any of this? We just sort of like, this was the pre-mortem. We were definitely like, this was an accelerated timeline for exiting the business. And it was a, it was a hostile ending at, 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 at best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what happened? I mean, we're sitting here today we're having a great conversation. Um, things yeah. ended up great. No, I, we, so what, what was interesting was that we kind of had this, like, I don't know, 24 hours, 48 hours of just like total panic. Um, really a lot of shame, honestly, for not anticipating this sooner. I was just like, why did we not collect AR sooner? Like why, like, all of the what ifs and and kind of beating ourselves up over it. And then yeah. we had actually developed like a little storefront online for monetizing samples to chefs. And granted, at this point, what we had online was like pretty basic. I mean, it was it's literally raw corn, which I don't know if anyone who's listening to this has ever cooked raw corn to make a tortilla. It's it's kind of it's a project to say the yeah. least. Yeah. Um, and we had some beans because our partner farmers also you know we buy kind of around. Um, try to really kind of holistically support them and, and all of the things that support the agriculture behind corn. So beans is one of those things. And then like we had some matha that we were sort of piloting at that moment, which we thought we were going to do for food service. They were in 2.2 pound bags, so like a kilo. So like not a small bag. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like everything started selling out and we started, we were just like, this is crazy. I mean, this is when toilet paper was impossible to find. And like, yeah, yeah. Every random thing that you've taken for granted <laughs> your entire life is now just like unavailable. You're waiting for two hours to get into a grocery store. It was nuts. And, you know, we kept replenishing inventory and just realizing it would sell out immediately. And we chalked this up to panic buying, you know, that was mm -hmm. happening across the entire country. But it turned out like after a couple of, of weeks, we we're like, wow, this is, this is holding. And in fact, it's growing. 
Uh, and then weeks turned into months and we realized that a lot of people who were buying from us, these weren't chefs anymore. These were home cooks who were coming back and really kind of like exploring. It was interesting. There were a lot of people who were either project cooks, first time cooks who were now cooking at home like everybody else. Um, and they chose masa instead of sourdough, which is great. Um, or, you know, these are folks who came up in Mexican American families and had never ever had a reason or kind of an appetite to make this stuff at home and to make masa into a tortilla. And when they did, they were deeply connected with something that they had taken for granted their entire life. I think and that like all of us, I think all of us took something for granted pre pandemic and that moment kind of just instilled an appreciation that, you know, we'll never forget. And Masienda was there for that experience as it relates to masa, which is one of, like I said before, the most important staples in Latin American cooking. And so, yeah, we became very quickly a direct-to-consumer company and it, it within a year had already eclipsed what we were doing at the height of our food service business. That is unbelievable. And now from a back-end op, you know, uh, standpoint, like a uh, back office operations, you know, how are you, are, are you using technology now? Have you, did you like, did you suddenly say, okay, I need to create a, a CRM database and track everybody and what they're purchasing and when and how and where they're coming from? Did you, did you, did you invest in any of that sort of um, equipment or technology to help you, you know, with the pivot of your business? I mean, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, we, we joke that like SaaS is our, you know, one of our biggest line items now. It's just like every, there's always a plugin for something for Shopify or, you know, whatever it is to get folks to either purchase from you more or like do it all more efficiently. But yeah, I mean, the nature of the business changed really quickly and it became less hand to hand combat and more kind of like digital optimization of every single session that we had online. So we kind of, it was, it was also really fun. I think at that point I was craving kind of a difference in sort of how we thought and related to customers and related to the business and gamifying the business. And I don't think there's anything more gamifying than like a direct to consumer, you know, storefront. It's, it's like, it's just, it's a blast. And how were they finding out about you? Word of mouth. I mean, for every person who bought a tortilla starter kit. So that was like a tortilla press, which we started oh, to kind of yeah. sell during the pandemic as well with two bags yeah. of masa. You know, things that we were like, these are like cute gifts, you know, that we really yeah. love. They were, they were nonstop selling. And so we were, um, you know, for every one person who bought, maybe they would tell five to 10 people about it because, you know, what else are you doing with your time in 2020? Yeah, everyone's at home. So um, it was just a great time to build the business organically. Was, now, is there any kind of Masiana community online? For sure. Yeah. I mean, social became kind of the, that, that, nexus of activity. Um, but yeah, it was really fun to just start seeing how cooks were engaging in social media across Instagram and Facebook and now TikTok. It was just like an interesting transformation because we were really industry facing before and didn't have a lot of that. We didn't have a line of sight into that stuff. And now home cooks were just like super proud to share all that. I saw that on your website, TikTok, Instagram, and uh, Facebook, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Three platforms that you use. And that's kind of an odd coupling, you know, in, in, in Twitter, you know, you, I do, you, you are on Twitter, I'm LinkedIn, I saw, and yeah. I think you're on Twitter, but, you know, really those are the, the kind of the social engagements that uh, TikTok and Instagram, where it's all video and reels and whatnot. All mm -hmm. right. So now when did the Capital One it was a contest, right? What, what, tell me about you that. You know, it, it wasn't. It was just 
unbelievable timing. So um, right actually at the end of 2019, uh, we launched this product, which is was really for food service. And it was like a tabletop mill. So if you're going to buy, if, you're, if you are going to go through the steps to actually make masa from scratch, it's very, very involved. Um, it's a, you know, like 12 to 24 hour process where you cook this corn, like I said, in this alkaline water, and then you have to mill it, like grind it down into a, a, a dough. And there was no machine on the market that was competitive in terms of price or size that would allow our customers to be able to easily adopt our product. Um, you had to spend $10,000 on a really huge piece of equipment that was like wow. three phase. So a bit of a deep cut for sure. Like I, it's not lost on me. This is a very niche product, but we were very, very passionate about getting something to market that could be used by customers and also help move through inventory faster. Because for every customer who would buy one of these mills, they would buy, let's say, a pallet of corn in, in a year, which wow. adds up when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of customers. The problem of this was that we just didn't have the ability to finance the R&D to make a machine like this. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know if, well, if anyone uh, who's listening has had experience trying to fabricate a machine from, from zero. Like it's quite, it's quite um, expensive and tricky. And, you know, we were, we were kind of like, exploring who might be able to do it and talking to mills and foundries all over Mexico and finally found someone who was willing to do it. But the startup cost was something that was prohibitive for us because we were, like I said, bootstrapped. We didn't have um, a line of credit at that point that we could tap into. Um, and so we started, we looked to kind of our rewards card. We'd had this Capital One relationship for a while. We'd kind of been saving these rewards for a rainy day. And, you know, it was, I, I can't even remember, I think it was about $40,000 in rewards at the time. Don't quote me on that, but like ish. Yeah. Um, and that was actually about what we needed to start kind of doing our first PO for like 10 units um, and start testing with real life customers. And so we use that rewards to basically launch this line of business, which ends up being, you know, more than a million dollars to the business, um, you know, very quickly. Uh, it grows to be though sort of like a, a small piece of the business, like one that had kind of an outsized I don't know, impact in terms of how people relate with the brand. And it was a major success story. And when I 2020 happened, it was like, I think March 2020, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. one of the team members from Capital One reached out and said that they'd sort of um, been exploring our company as in addition to kind of a lot of other companies in the space. And we're wondering if we had any good stories to share about how we use the card. And, and that that moment of kind of how we brought that product to life was it, you know, it was a it was something that I don't think many entrepreneurs or folks that they had spoken to had explored, you know, in terms of financing innovation. And so that was the, that was the hook. And I guess it was a competition, but I just didn't know we were competing uh, with a bunch of people for, no, for the, and that's what, yeah. And that's what I love about capital one is that, you know, they took a proactive approach saying, Hey, you know, here's a company that's doing something innovative and, they hear your story and they go, okay, let's, let's do something with this. So that this is, this that happened in 2020. Yeah. Yeah. The conversation started in 2020, which, you know, had a lot of downtime at that time to, <laughs> to talk about it and, and fantasize about how to make the story sound great to, you know, okay. to, to users. Well, I love this because, you know, I'm seeing the commercials today. Like that, what I love about it is they're all over sports. And so I've seen that commercial. <laughs> I've seen you probably a hundred times on, on commercials. And I remember saying to my kids, I said, you see that guy? He's going to be on my podcast next week. 
<laughs> so that's my claim. Seen it. I you are my claim to yet. fame. You yeah, are I, my... I, we don't have TV at home, so I, I like my my daughters just don't don't believe it. You know. Oh, that's hysterical. Yeah, well, they're like YouTube I'm... doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. So take us through that. So the initial reach out is is in 2020. What happens with Capital One? What do they say to you? How do you suddenly become the you know next small business superhero? Yeah, that's, thank you. Um, did not know that. Uh, wow, big big responsibility there. So we huge. You know, I think workshopped it with a relationship manager or you know one of the one of the kind of marketing relationship managers named Riz Zandi, who is my point of contact. And we workshopped a couple concepts that we thought might resonate with an audience, but the one that kind of kept coming up was this was this story, which you know I took for granted because it you know it was just like it was just being a scrappy entrepreneur. Like it to me, it's just like it's what you do. There's nothing really that special about it, but it it was you know now looking back, like it was something that really was uh, was unique and a storyline that I think a lot of entrepreneurs actually can relate to, mm. but maybe they just haven't thought about like you know. There's a certain grit you have to have in creativity to kind of summon either the energy or the resources to get something done when you don't have it. And I thought that the you know the card really spoke to that in terms of how we used it, and it's started to sort of resonate. I think in some of the the conversations they were having internally, and we ended up shooting. I think uh, long story short, we we uh, heard that we had made the final cut, mm-hmm. and that uh, you know we were kind of in consideration for the commercial spots. We filmed the commercial in 2021, and then. You know, we weren't sure. We we weren't sure if it was going to launch, um, and uh, kind of what the what you know the the strategies internally were at the time, and if it was going to make the right fit. You know, we there wasn't a guarantee just because we had filmed it, which yeah. I think was smart smart expectation management on Capital One side. Um, you know, and we at that point it was a win for us. You know, we, to just go through that experience of shooting the commercial was just super surreal and a lot of fun, and um, you know, like that was the arrival for me. Like that was enough. And yeah. so the icing on the cake, of course, was to get a call a couple of weeks ago, uh, hearing that it was going to go to air. And, um, you know, especially during kind of what is this really prime time moment of like NBA playoffs and just amazing visibility, which, to be honest, had it happened any sooner, we wouldn't have been ready for it. Because to your question earlier about software and how we're kind of like adapting our needs, you know, to to meet kind of this digital demand now, we were not ready for what the onslaught would be of, of demand and kind of exposure. It's created such a significant lift in traffic and and sales that, you know, we would have we would have squandered the opportunity a year ago had it come out. So we're feeling very, very lucky that it came out just when it did. Uh, you should play the lottery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at think about how your you you know what what has transpired over the last three or four years. You know, like they I mean, just the, the way you've pivoted your business, you know, from uh, a B2B to direct to consumer, and then hey, let's invent this milling machine that you know is affordable to people who want to do it on their own. Oh, by the way, now everybody has time to do this. Right. Mm-hmm. And you look at it and and it really has been incredible. So do you think you you invent that machine if you don't have your rewards money? No, no way. I mean, that there just wasn't. I mean, I'd like to say no. Capital One, while now it's like the first choice, like it's like logical now. It's like, of course, anything we have that's sort of a question about innovation that we don't have a line item budget to support, we yeah. just look to our rewards and see what we have. Like right now we've got like 
56,000 in rewards. And we're like, all right, just keep that, you know, in a holding pattern until there's something to test. Yeah. Um, it, it's basically a way to now finance our risk that we're willing to take. And, you know, those are meaningful bets um, when they have added up over the course of a year of, of operating expenses because we use our card for everything now. So 2% against now millions that we're spending, you know, it's like, it's a pretty amazing, it's uh, significant. you know, innovation fund that we've created for ourselves. Wow. That is absolutely brilliant. Um, what does your dad think today? Oh man. Uh, so my dad's he's name seen, is also. He's seen Jorge. the commercials, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, he's seen the commercials. Um, he, he likes to Google himself and see now like his, you know, son pop up, you know, we have the same name. So it's kind of just surreal for him <laughs> to be like, yeah, my law firm used to get a lot of traction and now it gets like no traction at all. Um, but uh, I'm just kidding. He's like kind of semi-retired. Um, no, he's excited. I think it's very, he, he is. So he told me after I decided not to go to law school and got into this restaurant side of things, he's like, you know, it's really exciting that you're doing this son. I have to tell you, um, your grandfather was, was also in the restaurant business. And I was like, wait, what? Like <laughs> your dad was in the restaurant business. He said, yeah. I said, he was an attorney. You've always told me he was an attorney. He said, no, he's, he actually, he was an attorney and he actually quit that job and started opening up restaurants in Cuba. And I was like, you, you scallywag, you, yeah, you could have just yeah. made your life a lot yeah. easier. So yeah. I think he's just like, it's all, he's just very proud, uh, quietly proud about just kind of the moment that, that we've, we've uh, kind of found ourselves in right now. Yeah. It's phenomenal. It really is. So we're, we're kind of in the home stretch of it. This is such a great <laughs> yeah. story. Actually, only the home stretch of the podcast. It's yeah. such a great story that you have. It's so day one. Tell me what what is next for Masienda? What what where do you want to be? I mean, the, the funny thing is when you look at the last again four years, you could never in your wildest imaginations have designed a GPS plan that would have taken you from where you were in 2019 to where you are today, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, impossible. So so then what what do you look at, you know, for the next three to five years? You know, where where is your business? Well, I mean, I think though it though the timelines for startups I think have have changed a lot. I mean, I think entrepreneurs, at least in my class, like my generation of of uh, companies, startups, I think tend to think of success in sort of very sort of short windows. And mm -hmm. I've never really subscribed to that, especially in food. It takes a long time to build something of substance and quality that endures beyond, you know, yeah. into the next generation. So I think, you know, it's been what, nine years since Mathiana started, the foundation is in place for the supply chain to scale it in a really responsible uh, way that drives a lot of impact and a lot of change for people. Um, we finally have a value added product on shelves. Uh, which is our masa arena. And um, that's basically like the dehydrated version of masa. You just add water to it. Okay. Um, and you have this building block for so many things. We're taking that and that is really the hero product that we're now channeling into the retail grocery, uh, brick and mortar kind of landscape. So we're launching into Whole Foods at the end of this month nationally wow. um, and are working with other retailers to onboard that for kind of as much distribution and access as possible. So yeah. Yeah, it's Start, we're, starting we're, with we're Whole Foods. Starting with Whole Foods nationally. Yeah, yeah. At the end of this <laughs> month. That's like so. You just you figure out. I got this. You jump right into the deep end of the pool. 
It only took nine years, Brian. Yeah, it only. Yeah, it, it's a it's a nine year overnight success. That's phenomenal. Congra- I'm I'm thrilled for your success. It sounds Thank like it's, it's well deserved, and uh, uh, you seem like a great guy. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, <laughs> I, you. I really am. I mean, likewise, I get to I get to tell these stories. That's kind of the beauty of what I do. I get to talk to people who have these incredible stories. And they're not easy. It's not this, you know, direct path to success. And, and you know, you do have some moments where you're like, oh, my God, like, I, okay, I think I'm just going to move on. And then life happens to throw you this unbelievable curveball. You know, like, if you think, what if you had just gotten out of the business in 2019, when you were kind of standing there at the doorstep of 2020, like, ah, I think maybe I'm going to remove myself from it. And you just stuck around had, a little bit. Had long. to spend those rewards points, you know, like they, they, they were going to get a waste if we didn't do yeah. it. I had to do something. There you go. There you go. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Okay. So last last question, and and this is something that I like to ask my guests is any any encouraging words for people who are coming up from you know coming up behind you, especially in the food industry, people who are you know that line cook right now in a restaurant, but have dreams of, of one day opening their business? I mean, I think the biggest one that I constantly remind myself of is to run your own race. You know, your, your journey is going to look different um, than the stories that you're reading about for other entrepreneurs that are out there. And it should be different because what is different makes you unique. And what makes you unique is a selling point and the perspective that you can relate to that others can't. So I think I was really hard on myself when I would... I mean, my dad was excited and always like very supportive. But I, I also, you know, the in-law test, I'm like, yeah, I, I started a corn company. And, you know, I get a lot of like empty looks for a while and like head scratching and maybe some curiosity. You know, it's taken time for me to refine kind of like what that pitch is and how to kind of say that in a compelling way, but also just like to to develop the infrastructure and the support to make it happen. So I think you know, it's like I said, a nine year overnight success. Like there is no timeline. There is no prescribed timeline, no matter what a VC says or, you know, a private equity group or kind of what other people might say. There's this is something that it, it needs to take its time. And if you're willing to put in that curiosity and, and wait the time to make it happen while being just open to possibilities, something good will come of it. Um, now you didn't have to answer in a direction you didn't expect. Yeah. You didn't have to answer to anybody like that, any kind of VC or private equity, did you? I mean, you know, friends and family when they invested, though they were very generous about like the the terms of it. I I didn't want to get, you know, I didn't I didn't want their investments to be to go to zero, you know. No, and that course. was something I was definitely thinking about in 2020. I was like, well, this is it. Like I was gonna take it's gonna take me 20 years to pay all this back, but now it's it's not gonna it's not gonna ever happen because of this like black swan event. Yeah. Um, so it was definitely something in the back of my mind. But no, the the timeline was 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 self-imposed. And I realized yeah. that, that was it wasn't helpful. Yeah. That was great advice. Run your own race. I think uh, I think that's we're going to leave it on that because too many times we we compare you know our total business to somebody else's highlight reel and we see the best of what somebody else is doing and meanwhile we have no idea what they're faced with when they're not on camera or up on stage so you know we're best just to focus on our own fantastic Jorge Gaviria. Gaviria. Perfect. Say you Nailed say it, it for me. Gaviria. 
Gaviria. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep practicing that. Well, I appreciate you taking time. Uh, I'm so glad that I got to watch your commercials on the NBA playoffs and I think baseball and hockey, probably. I mean, I'm watching everything. So you keep popping up. Survivor, you know, if you're a Survivor fan, I think it's, yeah. I, you're hearing it's, I'm hearing it's kind of <laughs> everywhere right now, Brian. Now, now I'm going to see you in a whole new light. I guess I know that. Guy. <laughs> um, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you taking time to tell your story. I appreciate um, Capital One for being there for you and all that they've done for your business. I think that's fantastic. And now I'm going to go order some corn. I'm going to go order some masa from Macienda. Yeah, and if you need a you know a, a credit card to help you out, I'm I'm like a true life evangelist for the card. So have, for what it's I worth. already have one. I, I have. So I'm, I'm getting my two percent. The Spark Cash Plus card. Yeah. <laughs> All right. No, thanks so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. And and to my listeners, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. You know, this these are the ones that I love to do the most. But I always appreciate your feedback, your comments, your suggestions. And uh, we look forward to having you on, uh, seeing you or listening or talking to you uh, on future podcasts. So with that, uh, take care, everybody. Have a great day. And we'll see you on the next episode of Small Business Edge Podcast. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.